Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Canada finally announced that they will be joining the diplomatic boycott at the Beijing Olympics. What took them so long, and how's Beijing going to retaliate? Donald Trump is on the comeback trail for 2024. Can Justin Trudeau help Joe Biden stop it? And the Bank of Canada keeping key interest rates on hold, for now anyway, but for how long? Moshe Lander, senior economist at Concordia, will join us to talk about that. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Finally, the Canadian government got off the fence and made a stand about uh, what they want to do or they're going to be doing in the upcoming Beijing Olympics. We know that earlier this week, uh, President Joe Biden said there was going to be a diplomatic boycott. A number of nations, including the UK, Australia, and New Zealand, joined in that. And uh, we were wondering, what's Canada going to do? Well, they finally made their decision and they will join the boycott. Uh, the Chinese embassy in Ottawa has responded to Canada's decision to join that boycott. Rob Westgate has details. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced Wednesday that the country would join the United States, Australia, New Zealand, and the United Kingdom in the boycott and not send any government officials to the games, citing extensive human rights abuses by the communist regime. Will the Chinese embassy push back saying Trudeau's claims of human rights violations are false? It said Canada is in no position to criticize China's human rights record and isn't qualified to be, quote, a human rights preacher, adding that China's human rights situation is at its historical best, while Canada, by contrast, has committed heinous crimes against Indigenous people. Rob Westgate, The Canadian Press. Well, we'll talk about some of the wordsmithing from the Chinese representative there in just a couple of seconds. But uh, joining us to talk about the implications and the decision, uh, please to welcome back to the program uh, Stephanie Carvin, who is an associate professor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Uh, professor, always a pleasure. Hope you're doing well these days. I am. Thanks. It's great to be back on the show. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. And I guess the two questions that come to mind, first of all, with the announcement from the Prime Minister yesterday, uh, A, what took them so long? And, and B, what are the ramifications going to be? Uh, okay, what took them so long? Let's, let's start there. Let's, let's so start, yeah, I let's think start a with number there. of things um, may have had uh, an impact there. One, of course, is the situation, the two Michaels, uh, that basically the Canadian government was kind of frozen for a very long time in any of its interactions with China. Uh, for the most part, there were, there were some steps that were taken for, uh, for example, Canada leading an international effort to uh, basically have an international agreement against arbitrary detention. So that was one thing which named China specifically, but was clearly aimed at China. But really, the, the criticism was muted when there were votes on whether or not there is a genocide in Xinjiang province against the Uyghur population. The cabinet voted, you know, they abstained from the vote. Mm -hmm. I, the liberal MPs actually voted for it, which was interesting. Um, but it was, uh, you know, it's, it's just been something they've been very uh, careful on. And I think the the Michael Kovrig, Michael Spavor situation did play a role in that. So that's one big thing. The second thing, of course, uh, we just had the speech from the throne come out. And, you know, foreign policy is usually never really a big thing in the speech from the throne. But at literally like the last two paragraphs, uh, it, it's in there. Um, and it starts off with taking a harsher stance against authoritarian governments, right? So mm -hmm. it doesn't actually surprised me that we went there, but there there was a couple of things that was that were probably necessary, at least in the mind of the government, to to get there to get there sooner. Although I think critics can rightfully say that, you know, this was a no-brainer. We should never have been going there anyways. 
Well, exactly. And, and I think as you and I discussed in some of our past discussions, uh, because of the two Michaels and because of the parliamentary motion that passed about genocide, uh, you'd like to think that the Canadian government would be at the front of the parade saying, yeah, you know what, it's time for this kind of a boycott, or at least even talk about that. But we always seem to be waiting for somebody else to make the first move. In this case, of course, it was it was the U.S. administration. Yeah, no, apparently there has been some talk that this was actually actively discussed between uh, Biden and Trudeau when they had their bilateral meeting a few weeks ago. So this may have been something on the table uh, for a while. It's, it's what, what I find interesting about this is that often, um, you know, in other kinds of realms of activities like cyber, uh, you know, when we're upset about uh, either China or Russia doing a lot of hacking, these big international statements will come out where all countries will say things at the same time. I'm kind of a little surprised that there wasn't more of a coordinated effort. I think that may have been a little bit more impactful. So I'm kind of, you know, it is too bad that Canada and the U S didn't go lockstep on this, but uh, yeah, it is, it is what it is. I, you know, it probably, you know, it's like, let, let's be honest about what we're talking about here. Right. It's not like we're saying our athletes aren't going to go. We're saying that we're not sending representatives of the state to this particular event, Right. And the, it's, it's, it's not, it, you know, I think I've seen some criticism on Twitter where it, it, it you know, this is a very, very low-hanging fruit that we can send. And oh, yeah. no kidding. Yeah. So, you know, this probably could have been done earlier, but but here we are. Yeah, I've, I've, you've seen some of the rather cryptic comments, I guess, on social media, too. Somebody suggesting that, you know, there's a lot of canopies that are going to go uneaten now because of this. <laughs> uh, well, no uh, one think uh, of because, the canopies. I mean, what, what do the diplomats do there? They go and sit in the VIP lounge, and then they go to a reception someplace. And, you know, they're they're hardly an integral part of, of the proceeds, but that's that's fine. Uh, I think um, but, if I can just come back on that, if you don't mind, yeah. I think like, look, yeah, I mean, I I agree with that in a lot of ways. And, you know, I love I love the idea of the canopies. It's really funny, actually. Um, but I, it, I think here's the thing. This is a highly symbolic gesture, but it's against a country that really values symbolism. So, right. So when you're trying to engage in in diplomacy and and um you know, the, and, and to, to kind of make meaningful actions, you have to like look at the other side and think about what they value. And what China values is putting on this big performance for the world to show that it's this big growing power, that it's a superpower, that it should be respected and everyone should kind of be in awe of all of its achievements and on and Xi Jinping and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, I, I actually think that it is a bit more than just the uneaten canapes. I actually think that this is, you know, seen as a snub and it's a country that is highly, highly sensitive to snubs. Right. So I don't you know, when when, you know, I think you know, a couple of years ago, uh, that the clothing chain, the gap had a t-shirt and they accidentally didn't include Taiwan, um, in their picture of China and China lost it and basically threatened to close down all the gap stores in China and disrupt, you know, <laughs> this chain there, uh, because of this one small oversight, um, China threatened all different countries because they didn't, uh, you know, when they said, you know, on their, on their routes to Taipei, um, oh, for their car national carriers, they didn't list Taiwan as part of China. And they said any airline that doesn't list Taiwan as part of China will not be able to fly into China, right? These are the kind of small little things that generate these giant reactions. And so, yeah, we have taken this symbolic move, but one, China really does value symbolism. And then secondly, uh, I, it would not actually surprise me if China does retaliate in some way against Canada in a way that, you know, targets trade, canola, pork, all these kinds of things that, that you know, China is consistently targeted over time.
to be expected, I guess. Well, I'll get to that in a second, but your, your point's well taken. You know, when Biden administration announced that they were going to initiate this boycott earlier this week, as you recall, the first reaction from the Chinese government was, so what? You know, we, the athletes are coming. That's all we care about. Well, it took them about 24 hours to say, yeah, and you guys, and, and they went into this big litany of uh, why it was the wrong decision, and now they've laid into Canada and the U.K. for this as well. So this does hurt. Uh, you're right. They don't like to be embarrassed on, on the international stage. Uh, and I think they knew that there's, nobody was going to tell the athletes not to come. That wasn't going to happen because uh, that's not fair to the athletes. And we'd already heard the U.S. administration, the U.K. and the Canadian administration say that's that's not really an option here. So this was inevitable, I guess. And, and yeah, they're ticked off about it, which I guess leads to the question we were just talking about there. What are the ramifications? I mean, you know, when, when we decided to, to play ball with the Americans and uh, with the Huawei situation, uh, you know, the, the arrest of the two Michaels was one of the consequences of that. Do they go to that extreme right now? I mean, there's already, what, over 100 Canadians, I think, incarcerated in Chinese prisons and jails and workplaces uh, in that country already. Uh, do they ratchet that up? What's, what, do you, what are you anticipating here? What's the government anticipating? So I'm really glad you mentioned that the, these other Canadians are detained. I mean, when, when I do talk about China, I like to mention, you know, Hussein Salil, who was, you know, yep. basically uh, was kidnapped. And, well, he's arrested in Uzbekistan at the request of the Chinese authorities sent to China. He was He's a Uyghur uh, human rights activist, and he's not supposed to get out of prison until 2036. He's had no consular access because his citizenship is not recognized by China, right? These are the kinds of issues we're dealing with, too, right? Like, do you really want to send diplomats? I mean... Look, diplomacy is important, right? We need to talk to people we don't get along with. Maybe you don't get along with your neighbor, but you're going to have to talk to them about the fence that's falling down, right? So it's not like we can cut off all talking to China, but you don't have to go, you know, to your neighbor's birthday party. We don't have to celebrate, you know, a country that is is detaining so many uh, Canadians and, and things like this. As for retaliation, um, yeah, I mean, I, like I said, I wouldn't. Often in these cases, what we see is, you know, it won't. They won't call it, you know, retaliatory sanctions. Like they won't say, "Oh, well, no, you're not, not coming." Yeah, yeah. So what they'll say but is, like, they, oh, the rest of the two Michaels, they never. They they said that was separate and apart. It had nothing at all to do with Huawei. Exactly. Right. So it's like they're going to say, oh, this is a health and safety issue with your canola. We found black leg fungus again. Um, or we found, you know, there's a labeling issue with the pork or, you know, that's what they're going to do. It's going to be some stupid health and safety issue that basically disrupts and tries to hurt a, a key sector of the Canadian economy. That's what's probably going to happen. However, I do actually think that there's more of a risk here to athletes. I mean, and, and this is something that I think is really important. Um Whenever the Olympics are held in an authoritarian country, the athletes themselves are targeted by intelligence services uh, for a number of reasons. One of the reasons is that you are trying to, you know, what are their training schedules? You are trying to get an advantage um, to figure out, you know, what what are the other people going to do and how are they going to do it? And, and, you know, they, they, they monitor them to, to give their own home team an advantage. But beyond this, they're going to fall, you know, they may put you know, if you go to an authoritarian country, they can put software on your phone to track you. They can look to see who you're communicating with. They can, uh, if you're communicating with the wrong people, there is a risk of arrest. Um, if you're saying things, you know, and they can they can follow you around and make sure that you know that you're being followed around. And so it wouldn't surprise me if in retaliation for this diplomatic boycott that Canadian athletes may face 
some kind of harassment on the ground. Um, you know, I was in a conversation yesterday on a, a different station, shall we say, uh, with uh, IOC representative Dick Pound. And he was saying, oh, well, you know, we always sign an agreement with the, you know, the country that, you know, they won't engage in these activities. But, you know, China is not engaging in less surveillance or engaging in more surveillance. And I do, you know, I'm not saying that the the athletes themselves are going to be arrested or they're going to be um, detained in the way that the two Michaels were. But there is actually a risk to them um, that is not insubstantial. And I think that, again, this kind of diplomatic boycott could be the kind of thing that increases the level of harassment that Canadian athletes experience. Well, and as you know, earlier this week, CSIS issued a report about uh, the increased activity by uh, by Chinese espionage agents about these sorts of things and tracking that's going on, which maybe is why uh, during the, the announcement yesterday about the, the Canadian government decision, uh, they also talked that they were going to ramp up security in the Olympic Village for Canadian athletes. I, I guess that's really what this is going to come down to. I guess RCMP and others are going to be involved in that. But there's a concern, I, and I agree with you, I don't think anybody's going to get arrested. But they are going to make their, their lives miserable. And we've heard this from other athletes that have gone over there. I remember way, way back the you know, Canada-Russia Summit Series, the hockey series, and back in 1972. And I talked to a lot of the guys that played on that team. And, you know, they talked about finding, you know, listening bugs in their hotels. Uh, you know, they had a, a practice schedule for 7 o'clock or 8 o'clock in the morning, and there was a bunch of kids on the ice. Says, oh, this is a, we were double booked. They do everything they can to try to screw you up. And, and I think you're going to see that sort of thing going on there, too. And it's, it's going to be problematic. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I was, last night I was kind of comparing it to um, one of my favorite scenes in movies because it's so cheesy, but the training montage from Rocky Four, where you see him training and the KGB guys are, you know, he's running down the street yeah. and the KGB car is following him and tries to run him over a couple of times. You know? and I don't think it'll be that, but yeah, no, I mean, in seriousness, I mean, we know, we think of, um, you know, there's this Olympic ideal, right? Like this Olympic idea, free and fair competition and things like this. But yeah, I mean, for, it, this is not what that this is about for China. This is China's attempt to kind of show its greatness on the world stage. And uh, it will do whatever it can to make sure that it looks great. And that may include um, things that we would consider to be uh, foreign influence harassment. And, um, you know, and so I, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that, yeah, like the this diplomatic boycott may mean that Canadian athletes are subject to greater scrutiny um, in China. I, I, I it would not surprise me at all if, um, you know, normally the the Canadian Olympic Committee is briefed by security officials, they are given some support before they go over, they may need extra support and going to a place like China. But, you know, again, like, I mean, the Olympic Committee says, Oh, well, we sign agreements, and they don't do these things. But, you know, the Olympic Committee never held Russia responsible for any of its, uh, you know, when it did all the doping in the Olympics, I think, you know, it, it never held it, it, it accountable. Like, there's never any consequence to pay for violating agreements, for violating the very essence of free and fair sport, uh, for harassing athletes. It just, it just doesn't happen. So, yeah, I mean, it's, um, again, like, I mean, we're not, we're not sending, I want to be clear, we're not sending athletes into the Thunderdome, but I mean, we are... There, there, there are consequences. No, there's, there's a concern there, but and yeah, like you say, scrutiny. I'll say harassment. But in the eye of the beholder, I guess I got like 60 seconds left, and I got to ask you one other question about this because uh, I've been wondering about this uh, since there seems to be a reticence on behalf of the Canadian government to do this because they're afraid of ramifications. Is this going to delay the decision about Huawei even more now because they know they're going to get dumped on for that too? No, I think um, maybe we can do a whole other uh, taping. Yeah, on that, this, that's but, um, we could do three hours on that. 
Um, yeah, I mean, look, bottom line is that we keep calling this the Huawei study. Really, it's it's a, a study of 5G in Canada generally. And yep. on that basis, they will then make a decision about Huawei. They're taking their time with this. They may actually need to pass legislative powers like they did in the UK to actually bring this out. I think they want to make sure they get this right, because if they don't do it the right way, uh, why will come back and sue? I don't think I don't think this particular issue is going to delay the Huawei decision. But yeah, I think I think you know we keep hearing we're going to get that decision soon. I'm not that optimistic. <laughs> well, it, it's it's imminent. Uh, it's you know imminent. that's what we were told it, after the it election. It was imminent it's, three years ago. So. And you know, you know, up in Ottawa where you are, imminent means you know anywhere within the next three to five years. So uh, exactly. we'll see what happens. Uh, governments move at glacial speed. Uh, Stephanie, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this. Really appreciate the time today. Not at all. Thanks so much for having me on. Take care. Professor Stephanie Carvin uh, from the uh, Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's been a busy week, especially in Washington. Uh, Earlier this week, uh, President Biden, of course, uh, had a face-to-face with Vladimir Putin. Well, remotely uh, because of COVID and everything. But uh, uh, we'll get mixed reaction about how well that went. But now uh, the president is actually going to be hosting a summit. Again, it's, it's going to be virtually, but it's a summit on democracy. Now, I know some people think there's a sense of irony to this, given the fact that democracy seems to be under siege in the United States itself, uh, especially after the last uh, presidential election and, of course, the, uh, the siege on Capitol Hill 11 months ago. But it's, it's happening nonetheless. Susan Delacourt writes about it, actually, in yesterday's uh, Toronto Star. A uh, fabulous piece called Donald Trump is on the comeback trail. Can Justin Trudeau help Joe Biden stop him. And uh, Susan Delacorte, who is the national columnist for the Toronto Star, uh, joins us to talk about the piece. Uh, great to talk with you again, Susan. Hope you're doing well. Nice to talk to you too, Bill, as always. Let's uh, let's talk about this. And uh, as I say, the, the idea of a democracy summit sounds fabulous. And, and, and as you mentioned in the piece, uh, years ago, generations ago, you would have said, yeah, that makes sense. You know, the United States is the, is the world leader in democracy. And and, you know, they can certainly teach us a thing or two about how democracy should run, and especially some of these other countries. As you mentioned in the piece, and I, I know I saw the headline in The Atlantic as well, it, I, I love the analogy you mentioned here. Like the, the, You said the distressing phone calls are coming from within the house here. I mean, this <laughs> America's exactly. got I, I, that's like the classic horror movie, you know, that they're, they're upstairs someplace. Uh, <laughs> they've got domestic problems to worry about before they start you know, spreading the seeds of democracy around the world. Yeah, I think that is the real difference in this. You know, most of us probably would have yawned a few years ago if, the, you know, the idea of the United States wagging its finger at um, at countries and, and lecturing them, you know, or benevolently sharing, you know, their great de- democratic experiment with the world. But as we're seeing in the United States right now, their own democracy seems to be very fragile. It, I think the media has started to wake up to this, the American media, especially in the last six weeks or so, you've seen that, hey, Trump is really, um, and Trump and his his supporters are really planning a repeat of 2020, the democracy denial they did after the last presidential election. But this time they're trying to game the system so that it works for them, whether that's revoking voting rights, limitations on them, or stacking the the legislatures, the um, you know, fooling around with the electoral college and and the voting system in the United States, and it it has only 
just recently that everybody's woken up to it. I highly commend to everybody The Atlantic, always the magazine, but its yeah. uh, its new issue is devoted to this. And it says, point blank, the coup has already begun, uh, which su- should send chills down people's spines. So that's the background against which Joe Biden, who did win the last presidential election legitimately, is holding this summit. That, that uh, this is no longer talking about democracy problems in some far-flung countries. This is right here in his own house. But, and, and yeah, the, the piece in the Atlantic is, fa- is fascinating about this. Uh, and we've already seen the pieces of this about the fact that the coup has already started. And, and I don't know that, that, that Trump is coordinating all this. There are probably a lot of people smarter than, than he is uh, that are pulling the strings here. But you're right. It's a different set of circumstances. The political... Uh, backdrop in the United States is much different. Uh, as you mentioned, federal elections, where you elect a president and Congress, and are actually done at the state level. The, each state has their own set of rules, as we saw last election, of course. You know, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't vote here, etc. Uh, and what they're doing, I guess, as opposed to simply saying we're going to make a, another shot at the White House, is they're going state by state and changing the voting rules and going to make it even more problematic uh, for, well, Democrats, uh, people of minority groups to, to vote in this election. It's, there's a strategy at place here, isn't there? Yeah, there is. And also it is, um, it's preying on American cynicism about all of the things that have, um, you know, normally been unquestioned. You know, the, 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 all that yelling about fake news that Trump did, it served to undermine the media. So you have a a good proportion of Americans now not believing that the last legit election in the United States was legitimate. I have watched, I'm sure you have too, you know, those streeter interviews where you yep. go to these rallies and, and there are Americans saying that Trump is actually is the president right now. They, they actually believe he is. And these are not, you know, these are people who just don't believe what they're reading in the media or uh, getting from institutions anymore. So, um, that's the challenge. You know, I, I'm not sure that a day of speeches or two days of speeches in the United States at this summit is going to fix it, but it is uh, the problem staring them right in the face. And, and the strategy here, as you point out in the piece, I think is, is well, it's, it's obvious to a lot of people, I think, now, is, is, is to say, instead of simply attacking the Biden administration and saying that's an illegitimate, they're underpinning the, the whole sense of democracy. In other words, the form of government and saying it's wrong, it's wrong, it's corrupt, it's not working for you. And once you do that, if there's no foundation for that democratic belief, uh, you're in trouble. And, and that's what they're trying to chip away at, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, and so to bring it home here to Canada, I've been um, talking to people inside this government who are chilled by this. Um, this is not a small matter to them. Uh, first of all, there's just the, you know, the democratic principles. But if the United States, you know, there's the old thing, if, um, if the United States sneezes, we get the cold or, or whatever. But um, there, there is the, the real possibility, and we're already seeing it, if, if Biden is worried, so worried about this, in his own country, can he even worry about his closest neighbor? And we've seen all the ways in which Biden is now trying to appeal to that that base of uh, or shake loose some of those people uh, that were supporting Trump with various protectionist measures that hurt Canada. So the United States is turning inward, and that doesn't leave a whole lot of room to look outward. And Canada 
is accustomed to doing democratic and other things in concert with the United States. And that's what the Trudeau government was looking forward to, was was having an ally at the White House again, too. And it's it's the, the Trump threat to democracy and other things from down there is making it a, a it, it's a stone in the shoe of the uh, the relationship for sure. Well, and as you mentioned, we've seen that even with trade decisions. I mean, you know, Biden may well be a friend of Canada in the White House, but if he's putting out his own fires, and, and some of those fires are, are within his own party. You know, midterm yep. elections are coming up very shortly, and a lot of people that are in Republican-dominated states who are Democrats who got elected anyway are saying, look, at you you got to play ball with these guys, or, I'm, or we're all going to lose our seats. They're afraid right now they're going to lose the House of Representatives. They could lose the Senate again. And if that's the case, I mean, we already saw what happened in the Obama administration when he didn't control the Democrats, didn't control either of those sides. You were essentially a lame duck president because you can't get anything done. And and that's, that's, right. one of, that's one of the stated goals of the Republican Party. Mitch McConnell is very open about that. And the, the rap against Biden already is that he's not getting anything done. You know, that, yeah. uh, and this is a guy who does control Congress right now or, or from the party that's supposed to control Congress. So, yeah, it is... It, the Canadian talks with Americans apparently have been, um, they've been very struck by the ways in which uh, the, the Trump chill is, uh, is going all through the White House right now. And, and that's concerning. I did talk to the people who were working on Canada's participation in this summit too, and they said that the Americans are coming, the Biden White House is coming to this summit with a degree of humility. They, they do understand that they can't be lecturing to the world about democracy when they've got their own problems. So I think the onus is going to be on on every country to come to this summit with a list of, of ways in which they're trying to protect democracy here or at home in their own places. So Trudeau's remarks, I think he's making them probably as we speak, uh, but they're closed to the media, so we're not seeing them. Biden, I, I watched Biden's uh, speech at, at uh, 8 o'clock this morning. Uh, and and he did talk about he didn't mention by name or or even explicitly what was going on in his own country, but he did talk about the fact that democracy is particularly fragile right now, and that uh, the summit is intended to show the resolve to fix it. And as you pointed out in the piece, it's it's not just the trade ramifications that we're experiencing here, and maybe a, a little bit of a political cold shoulder because Biden's preoccupied. The other element is we've seen elements in this country of some of the, the shenanigans uh, that went on during the last election, you know, with protests that get violent at times, uh, some incredible uh, statements being made on social media. That's that's creeping into our system right now. And that's got to be a concern to this government, I would think. Uh, they, they are very, you and I have spoken about this. Um, yeah. I, I saw one of those protests up close and uh, they were, their, their lines were written by the Trump rallies in the United States. They were calling themselves deplorables. They were uh, saying that Trudeau should be locked up, reminiscent of the lock lock her up yep. stuff from uh, from the you know against Hillary Clinton. So uh, they are inspired. The, those protests were inspired in, in, to some degree. Uh, apparently, the, the, there will be a large discussion at this uh, summit behind the scenes about democracy in the digital space, because the same thing that, that well, we've all seen it too, and you just alluded to it, 
there's something great and democratic about the fact that everybody has a voice on Twitter. There's something deeply disturbing about some of the voices that we're seeing on Twitter. And um, that I think is going to be a concern. Canada has uh, a bill coming about hate speech and that's going to be controversial. Every time you try to crack down on speech in this country in any way, you see the backlash. So we're moving in that direction ourselves and trying to rein this in our problems aren't as severe, but I, I think that, that what we saw during the election should disturb us. And, and this is not, I know some people are going to say, Oh, you just don't like, you know, conservative politics. It's, this is not about conservative, small liberal conservative or left wing or right wing here. Uh, it's about ideologies and it's about the methodology uh, that they are, they're preaching right now, which basically says for us to get our way, we can do whatever we want, whenever we want. Uh, and don't expect any ramifications. They don't want to play by the rules that we've been using for, for many, many years. But with that in mind, uh, you know, the, I guess the rhetorical question that you raised in, in the piece, Susan, is what can the Canadian government do about this? I mean, you know, as I say, when the prime minister is making his comments, uh, if he's already started already, he can't just say, hey, don't hire the, don't, don't elect this guy again. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He can't mention it by name as Biden, as Biden did. Uh, can they do anything at all here? I mean, by, by, not necessarily words, but by actions uh, to to try to to help the, the the U.S. administration, which eventually is going to end up helping themselves too. I think you know these these various global efforts. I think the the idea that the world uh, can act in concert is a good thing too. And I, I when I've spoken to people inside government, so they say sometimes the the best antidote to this is to show people that government works that government can actually be a force for good in your life. And that sounds like a Hallmark card, but uh, the pandemic was kind of useful for this. It, yep. it showed people that the government does work for you when when you need it. It is, it, I'm so sick of hearing the phrase, we have your backs that I want it banned <laughs> now. But, <laughs> but the idea that there is a net, you know, and there is something that, that will stop us from, you know, devolving into chaos and and poverty. I think that was brought home to Canadians during the pandemic and probably Americans too. And it's the government that is giving you those shots in the arm right now and the vaccines that all of that, that's the kind of thing that's not talking about democracy, that's showing that it actually works. Um, and I think, so the, the best antidote is good government. Um, and it's a lack of cynicism, though, too. And cynicism, as you say, you say is, is rampant. I think it's the idea that, that uh, you know, not. I, I think we in the media have to watch this idea that all politicians are corrupt, that all governments are corrupt. I think uh, that the language of politics has to, has to be careful about this, too, because it just feeds the idea that, um, you know, if you're going to elect, it doesn't matter who you elect, they're all they're all corrupt. And it's a bygone day. I mean, we you know, we recognize the passing of Senator Bob Dole earlier this week. Uh, one of the last uh, people in the U.S. Senate, I guess, that was using that old phrase again. I hate to use those cliches too, Susan, but reaching across the aisle uh, to try to get things done. It's, to- it's so polarized, and that's starting to happen here in this country uh, with politics too, where you're either with us or, or you're against us. And if you're against us, then you're an idiot, and we're going to hate you for it. The, you don't get that political discourse anymore. To the I've point re- now I've where, really as you say, that. yeah, and, and, and you know, even if you use your example of, hey, look at how the pandemic brought everybody together and government worked together, the way they've responded to that that mindset is to simply say, yeah, well, the pandemic was just a concoction of the, of the people on the left anyway. 
You know, there, there was no <laughs> pandemic. Right. There, you don't need vaccinations. This is all just a, a, a ruse. And you got, you know, the, the well, people like Aaron Rodgers and others that are, are perpetuating that sort of thing. And it, it just, that gives them something to cling to. And the Sean Hannity's and the Tucker Carlson's down on, on television down there too. It's, this is a monumental problem. And, and I'm, I'm glad you wrote the piece because it's something we need to pay attention to because we've been naive to think that, uh, well, that's down there. We're up here. Everything's going to be fine. Uh, we, as you mentioned, we're starting to see not just the seeds of this, but we're just starting to see the ramifications of it here. I see it in this this very tiny little way, and it sounds like it's shallow. Or, um, but there used to be a time in Ottawa. I've been here a long time, where people from opposite parties would, you know, like the old Bugs Bunny cartoon or the cartoon where the the wolf and the sheepdog check in for work together, but walk to work yeah, together. Yeah, I know the one. Yeah. It used to be like that here in Ottawa, too. There was the theater of the house where they bark back and forth at each other, but then they would go and have a drink or lunch together. You would see partisans mingling, and MPs made true friendships across the aisle. And you see less and less of that now in Ottawa. There aren't, there aren't, um, there, there are partisan gatherings now after work, and the pandemic did make that worse. Because there weren't the trips for politicians to go on together. There wasn't, there weren't in-person meetings where um, people had to work together in the same room. So uh, we did lose a bit of that during the pandemic as well. And, you know, you always see when politicians retire, they, they give big speeches about how they made friendships across the aisle. But they don't talk about them day to day. And I, I think... The politics could use a little bit more of that. That sounds sucky and, you know, Hallmark cardish. But I, I do actually believe that that some of the best things that get done in politics are when the parties work together. We saw that a bit of that uh, a couple of weeks ago in the House. Yeah, and well, especially with the you know the conversion therapy uh, legislation, right. which is interesting. But you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, I've, I've known people that have worked in government up there for years, and of course, you've been observing this, and you'd see them go tooth and nail against each other in question period, and then an hour later, you'd be walking past the outdoor patio with Darcy McGee's there, and they're the two of the people that just were <laughs> going after you, having a beer together. And and that that's doesn't right. mean that you know that that doesn't mean what they did in the house was phony. It was it was real. But they said, okay, that's, you know, it's, it's like a football player. The, okay, that's where we fight our battles. What's The game's over and you go to the locker room. You don't have to hate your your, your, your opponent, but you should respect them. And the, 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 maybe that's the word that we're looking for here that just doesn't seem to exist in politics these days. Respect. Yeah, that's, that's uh, it, it is. Uh, I, I watch Question Period very closely for that every day, too. And and sometimes, yesterday was a pretty really bad day. And they're not exchanging criticism about the behavior or the policies they're exchanging um, criticism about the character of people, you know, that, yeah. you know, you're a liar, you're dishonest, you're a criminal, you're corrupt. And, and that is corrosive. It's a, uh, it makes for, it, it's fine. You know, maybe it, it keeps the team spirits up, but for the public watching it, it's a pox on all your houses. Well, uh, we'll see what comes out of this thing, and uh, well, the, the virtual thing anyway that the president is is initiating. But there's a real concern here, and I'm glad the the piece I think is is hopefully going to initiate some dialogue on this side of the border about what needs to be done. I know you've already talked to some of the folks in uh, the federal cabinet about this, and they seem to be on side with this too. But 
uh, we'll see just what kind of actions are going to be uh, forthcoming as a result. It's called Donald Trump is on the comeback trail. Can Justin Trudeau help Joe Biden stop him? Uh, it's still on the, the Star webpage, by the way. And it's a, a read that I think everybody should take some time to do. Always a pleasure, Susan. Thanks so much for this. Uh, have a You're great You're always so kind, we'll Bill. Thank soon. you. All right. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Susan Delacourt, national columnist with the Toronto Star. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about something that's going to have an impact on each and every one of us, of course, and that's uh, interest rates. Uh, Yesterday, the Bank of Canada said it is keeping its key interest rate target on hold at these rock-bottom levels we've been enjoying for the last little while. Don Kelly has some details for us. The central bank says senior policymakers don't expect to raise the trend-setting rate until sometime between April and September of next year, which is in line with its previous guidance. The Bank of Canada also warns high inflation rates will persist and that it won't be until the second half of next year that inflation falls back toward its comfort zone of between 1 and 3 percent. The bank's keeping a close eye on expectations for price and wage growth to make sure they don't create a spiral of price increases. Don Kelly, the Canadian Press. A lot of people surprised by the decision yesterday because of what's happening with inflation. Uh, I want to bring uh, Moshe Lander into the conversation. Moshe, of course, is a senior economist lecturer at uh, Concordia University. Moshe, thanks for the time. Great to have you back on the show today. Always a pleasure. Were you surprised by the announcement yesterday? No, I, I actually wasn't. I was I was predicting that they're going to hold rates for, for some time. Uh, in, inflation is getting a little high by recent standards. But the fact is that you you don't raise interest rates right now when this Omicron is uh, spreading and, and nobody really knows how bad it is or could be. How do you balance these? And I guess that's the, the question everybody in Ottawa has been asking themselves for the last 20 months. The economic needs, and, and as you know, there's some pressure on the Bank of Canada to raise interest rates because of what's happening with inflation. But then, as you mentioned, there's the other reality here that we're still in a pandemic. As a matter of fact, it, you know, as you say, with the new variant in here, we don't know how much longer this is going to go on. Yeah, it, it, there's two types of shocks that can hit an economy. There's there's a demand side shock uh, where you know consumer spending runs wild, or firms are spending huge amounts on uh, you know plants and equipment and and uh, investments. Uh, but the other side is the supply side. And, and when there's a supply side shock, this is usually what poses a problem for the Bank of Canada. And that's what we're having right now. You and I have talked in the past about supply chain issues and things like that. And mm-hmm. the reason supply chain uh, or supply side shocks are a problem is because what they usually do is create this mess for the Bank of Canada, slowing economic growth at the same time as rising prices. And interest rates then become really difficult to try and figure out which one of these problems are you going to address? You fix one, you make the other worse. And and there are ramifications, as you mentioned, to both. I mean, you know, it's, uh, inflation's high. And we, okay, we got to do something about that. But do you run the risk then if you decide to start raising interest rates about, uh, you know, what might happen? Are people going to stop buying? Are people going to start hoarding whatever money they have? I mean, does the economy slow down as a result of that? That's exactly it. So when you have a supply side shock, if you raise interest rates, this would stem inflation but it's going to slow economic growth or even put it into reverse. And if you leave interest rates unchanged, then this helps boost economic growth, but it could allow inflation to spiral. And so in the clip that you played by by Dawn, uh, she said that what the bank is watching for right now is that if inflation starts to create that spiral effect, that's when they're going to feel that they absolutely have to move. But until they see that spiral effect, they're probably going to sit on their hands for, for probably another year. Moshe, how how does the the bank respond to this? How prescriptive do they need to be 
you'd like to think there's probably some people that say, yeah, we need to kind of control this and make sure this doesn't get out of hand. Or do you simply let the market work and then react to however the market goes? I, I think that what the bank wants to do is try and at least manage expectations, right? So if, again, in that clip that you played, what they said was that, you know, by the end of the year, next year at least, they expect inflation to be back to its 1% to 3%. And so what, what the bank is trying to signal to people is don't get crazy, okay? Inflation is high now, but this is not the time when you walk into the boss's office and say, I now expect 5% raises forevermore. If you can keep that under control, then by that forward guidance, what will happen is when it does get back to 1% to 3% by the end of the year, if all goes well, then the Bank of Canada is going to say, all right, we have no problems raising interest rates at this point uh, as a way to deal with you know, controlling that inflation and, and keeping a lid on it. It's if people start to get a little bit out of hand, then they have to say, all right, if you're going to get out of hand, then we need to get out of hand. And if that's going to do damage to the economy, unfortunately, you're not behaving yourself, so we need to kind of keep you in line. And that's that's really kind of the, the exercise that they have to watch for. They're, these are smart people, uh, the Bank of Canada, the Bank of England. I mean, all the, all the places that are setting policy like this. Did they not foresee this 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 inflation rise coming as a result of what was going on? They did. Um, maybe not to this extent. And, and notice what's happened is that every time they keep saying, we think the worst is over, it's not, right? And, you know, they're smart people, but they don't know how the virus is is working its way around the world. And these waves and waves that just keep coming and the variants that keep coming and the, the resulting supply chain issues and flooding in BC, and they can't foresee that at the time. So all they can do is every six weeks, they just provide us an update saying, whoa, we didn't see that particular thing coming. Uh, because while they're smart people when it comes to the economy, they can't foresee those types of global events and those types of uh, you know, environmental disasters. And so when those happen, that's when they have to update. And that's why they keep letting us know what they're seeing. And hopefully we kind of adapt our expectations in line with what they're seeing. Is it's a break inevitable? And as you say, I'm I'm hearing different stories. I mean, some you heard the story that Don Kelly mentioned. They they figure maybe April or so uh, they may reconsider this. I'm hearing as as you just mentioned, some people are saying maybe a year from now they might reconsider this. And, and I get your point about it's going to depend on what happens with the variant uh, and, and what's going to be happening with that. But uh, what about consumer uh, behavior in the meantime? How can that influence what's going on? Well, if consumers do get out of hand, right, that's exactly the demand side shock that I was talking yeah. about a little bit earlier. And so when when demand side shocks happen, the Bank of Canada has very clear paths. If consumers lose their mind and start spending like crazy, then the Bank of Canada will advance those interest rate hikes and, and move it up earlier into the year. If consumers remain morose and if maybe the, the holiday season doesn't quite work out the way people thought, or um, if all of a sudden, you know, you find that businesses aren't all that interested in investing, then the Bank of Canada is going to hold interest rates. So we, we do have some influence. That's not to say don't spend because we don't want interest rates to go up. It's just, again, keep a level head and do what you would normally feel that you need to do. And the Bank of Canada will react based on how we behave. How comfortable are you when, when governments decide, hey, oh, we're going to try to help and we're going to try to manipulate this? And Because uh, all of these things are interrelated. I mean, we're talking about consumer spending, et cetera. And I, I guess you can't really have that discussion without talking about housing prices and, and, and the craziness of the real estate market now uh, and the way prices have gone. And, and there's a lot of discussion going on in Ottawa right now, as I'm sure you've heard, too, about how governments may do that. Now, they, they don't set monetary policy. That's the Bank of Canada. But they can still have influence on that. I mean, there's an, an ugly rumor going around in Ottawa now 
that there's some serious discussion going on about the capital gains tax on primary residences. So not just as a means to raise revenue, but as a means to slow down the housing market. Like, yeah, you better think twice about selling that house now because it's going to cost you a ton of money. There are going to be ramifications. I'm not suggesting it's coming, but the fact that they're talking about it uh, means it's on the table someplace. Uh, can can governments certainly can have influence over what's going on like that, but do they always understand the ramifications and what that might do to the marketplace? Well, I mean, fiscal policy, if it's being used to try and stabilize the business cycle and things like that, is probably a weak instrument in Canada. And that's in part because we have a flexible exchange rate, right? So if governments start to try and spend their way out of a mess, like we've seen in the last 12 months, um, you know, that's going to put pressure on the Canadian dollar. And and when that happens, uh, some of the good that they're doing could be offset by movements in the in the dollar. Um, that said, if they're looking to try and target particular markets, like you said, the housing market for one, um, you know, they have some influence over it, but usually all that does is it just pushes the money elsewhere, right? So, you know, one of the things that we saw was that um, when when you try and kind of squeeze the balloon by controlling the housing market, the the air just shifts to a different part of the balloon. And next thing you know, we're, we're having discussions about GameStop shares and Bitcoin because money is going to just channel to where its return is the highest. And so it, it, it solves one problem maybe, but it's going to create another one that you and I will be talking about in six months that, hey, who would have foreseen that this particular market is now running out of control? And, and you're right, housing market's a great example of that. I mean, governments for the last couple of years now have been trying to influence that by uh, penalizing foreign investment and foreign ownership on, on, on properties here in this country. I think it started in Vancouver, and it's, it's kind of willed its way across the country. But it hasn't, it hasn't slowed down speculation, has it? No, and, and you know, you, you hit a key idea there where you said it started in Vancouver. And so as soon as you try to put some sort of control in Vancouver, next thing you know, it's Toronto and then Montreal and Halifax and Hamilton, right? Who would have thought that Hamilton now has a spiraling housing market that's that's red hot? Um, it, it's just one of those things that it, it it's a it's a really blunt instrument to try and control things. Um, you know, the greatest way to control the housing market is with municipal zoning laws. If you create restrictions on the ability to build housing, uh, then you're constraining the supply side, and that's what's driving prices higher more than anything. Uh, if you loosen those regulations, and that's at the municipal level, not at the federal level, then all of a sudden, any home builder is going to recognize that, hey, there's a red hot market there. Now's the time to build houses. And guess what? It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that they'll cool off the market by racing in there to try and take advantage of, of those high prices. Well, and there's a big debate going on in the Hamilton area right now about urban boundary expansion and now, you know where those houses should be built. And, and I guess that's happening in other communities as well. But but you're right. I mean, you know, because they're looking at government projections about how population is going to grow. And and you've got some people on council saying, well, I don't believe those numbers. Well, I said, if you don't let them build houses, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, so, it, you know, the, what's happened at the municipal level very much has an impact on what's going to happen with, with the housing market and, and pricing for that matter. Absolutely. And, you know, if you try and control, say, the the Hamilton housing market, then how fast does that spill over into surrounding communities, right? Next thing you know, Burlington is going to race out of control uh, or all the way down into the Niagara region is going to race out of control because, um, you know, people are going to view this as, all right, we can't build in Hamilton. Then what's within a one hour radius? And next thing you know, you have gridlock on the queue and you have all kinds of other problems that are coming about. Um, it's just one of those things that every time you think that you're solving a problem with a particular government policy, uh, the market is just going to find its way around it, right? It's not going to shrug and say, oh, well, I guess I did my best. They're just going to say, well, where's next? 
letter to the editor, I, I forget which paper it was, might have been the National Post, uh, talking about this whole thing. And, and the writer was simply saying, look at governments, just take your hands off. Things are going to work themselves out once the pandemic gets under control again. Uh, inflation will control itself, etc. In other words, you know, let 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 things happen the way they're supposed to. The circle of life, I guess. Is that a realistic expectation? Well, it, it, it's a good it's a good comment, and it's one that uh, you know I might have written that letter myself. Even um, <laughs> I, I, I I think the problem is you don't use that... a nom de plume, do you? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, you know when when the when you'd say to the government, keep your hands off, it's really hard for them to keep their hands off. Imagine getting in front of a microphone as the prime minister and being asked, what are you doing to help the economy? And his response is nothing. Um, you know, well, he got it, burned it, by that, didn't he? Did Marsh remember a couple of years ago, deficits will look after themselves. That's exactly it, right? It, it's this idea that, you know, politicians logic is I have to do something. This is something. Therefore, I have to do this. Like it's, it, you know, you can't just say that, look, this will work its way out because you get roasted that, well, why are you in charge then, right? Anybody else could do this. You could put a, a chimp with a lever and they could just pull the lever and control the economy that way then if nothing's really required. So, you know, the issue here then is that politicians feel that they have to do something to justify to the, the people that they're in charge. And that's the way that they show, you know, they're in charge. It's, it's unfortunate that we don't allow them to say, we're just going to ride this one out and you will too. And we'll be better for it in six months, 12 months. You know, let's, let's get the, the pandemic under control. Let's get everybody vaccinated. And once we do that, things will be fine. It, it's a hard stance to take uh, in front of an open mic, especially when it's reduced to a five second soundbite that here's what the prime minister said. And he says, I'm going to do nothing. Yeah. Well, and, and let's just say, I guess the temptation to just jump in here uh, and the Bank of Canada, I guess, is in the same position. I mean, Doug Porter, of course, the the, uh, the BMO chief economist, uh, mentioned yesterday after the rate stabilization that uh, he says it's going to be a, not just a hike, but he says it could be two or three hikes in succession in the latter part of 2022. I, I don't know if that's a matter of trying to play catch up uh, or, you know, what's going to be happening, because they're also predicting that inflation is probably going to be back down around 2.1 percent there. So are, are, are interest rates even needed in a situation like that, interest rate hikes? It's going to be how fast does inflation get back under control, right? So if it mm -hmm. stays persistently high in this 4.7, 4.8, 4.9 range, then the bank is going to, you know, they, they move incrementally, but they'll move quickly. And if they say, all right, here's a quarter percent hike, what are you guys going to do about it? Uh, if inflation comes down, then they might say, all right, we need another quarter percent. If it comes down to 2%, then they say, all right, we're done. Uh, but if it's slow to come down or if people do lose their minds and they go about asking for crazy wage increases uh, because of the inflation, then they might say, all right, you know, you leave me no choice, but I have to move aggressively and quickly. And, you know, anybody with a variable rate mortgage is just going to find very quickly that that's not a fun situation to be in. And that might be what's necessary to, to bring them back under control. I, they also mentioned, by the way, in ju their justification of not doing anything yesterday, uh, that there are really strong indicators that the economy is starting to rebound. And they looked at employment numbers and things of that nature. Uh, is, is that a solid foundation? Because, I mean, a lot of people are questioning those numbers. Yes, there are jobs being created, uh, but they're not being filled in a lot of cases like that. And that's not really helping the economy. Yeah, it's this conundrum that, again, the, you know, the, the smart people at the Bank of Canada are looking at that, you know, they're saying that the economy is back almost to its pre-pandemic level. And that could very well be true. I'm not saying it's not. But even if you say that it is back to its level, that's almost two years ago now. And so we've lost two years of economic activity. So while we might be back to that level, 
we're maybe about 7% behind where we should be, right? So here's kind of the conundrum that, yeah, we've almost made it back to where we were, but we're still kind of behind. The labor market is at its strongest that it's been since before the pandemic, yet people don't seem to have the type of jobs that they want or the hours that they want. And so there's this odd kind of contradiction that's at play here that things look good but maybe they're not so good. And again, it's one of those reasons why the Bank of Canada is just sitting here saying, all right, until we get a clear indication one way or the other, we just have to sit and hold our hand uh, you know, without a rate hike and, and until then. And we know that whatever they do when they come to do it, it it's going to be rates go up. It's not rates are going down. Yeah, and that's that circumstance that you know you've talked about in the past too. You know, you get a, a story like this that says the economy is starting to improve, and people look around and say, "You're kidding, really?" Uh, and you know, that's the reality. I guess is what's happening around your world. Always a pleasure, Moshe. Thanks so much for this. Uh, stay well, and hopefully, we can talk again soon. Absolutely, anytime. Take care, Moshe Lander, of course, economist and lecturer at Concordia University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from nine to noon on nine hundred CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.